Thanks, Josh. Appreciate that. Um, man, this is just one of those mornings, guys, maybe feeling like me, where it's just like you just want to keep singing forever, <laughs> you know? Worship comes on, and, and the, the lyrics are hitting, man. The sound is right in here this morning, and, and I just want to continue singing out my heart to God, right? But uh, unfortunately, we have to move on with the service. <laughs> so my name is Jared Cole. If you guys don't know me, um, I've been here several times to preach for you guys. You guys as pastors, Matt, man, and Josh, they have been super gracious to allow me to come over and man, just preach the word to you guys on several occasions. I've been super, super grateful for that. And you just heard Josh just say, man, this is the last time that I'll be able to come here and do this uh, for you guys. My family and I, we have a next chapter coming up and we'll be moving. I know I've shared with you guys several times that we're going to be doing something different. We'll be moving. We'll be going somewhere with the intention to plant a church. Uh, And the last time I gave you guys an update, that place was Atlanta, Georgia. And you just heard Josh just say Madison. So some of you are probably like, wait, what? What did he just say? Right. (laughs) It was just Josh. Josh Josh made a mistake, right? No, no, no. It's No, but really, we did make a change. We were going to be going to Atlanta, and now we'll be going to Madison, Wisconsin, to pursue a church plant residency. Uh, Our intention is to get to Milwaukee to plant our church. Uh, And so, man, just over the course of the year, uh, some discernment, having some conversations, we just started thinking, man, maybe uh, some of the proximity to the place that we want to get to is going to be more valuable than a similar and like context that Atlanta would give us to Milwaukee. And so over a year, that just became more abundantly clear. And so now we made that hard decision to say no to Atlanta, which we thought we were going to be doing for the last nine, ten months, <laughs> you know, and now going to be going to Madison. And so I appreciate you guys praying with me through this and praying for us uh, in this transition. Uh, but that's our update on our life. Um, I also want to talk about, before I jump into the sermon, uh, today, right? Today we know is a holiday. It is Father's Day, but it's not only Father's Day. Um, a couple years back, some of you who may use Google Calendar probably saw a new holiday <laughs> pop up on your guys' calendar uh, called Juneteenth, right? And just last year, Juneteenth became recognized as a federal holiday, Juneteenth is a holiday that many may not know about or many are kind of unfamiliar with and are trying to figure out, okay, how, how, what is this holiday? How do I engage with this holiday? I want to give you guys a little background on what this is. Back in June, June 19th, 1865, was the day that the last slaves in Texas got word that they were now free. Those of you who know some American history, the Emancipation Proclamation got signed into legislation January of 1863. That should have freed the slaves in all the slave states. But Texas was a state that held on to their slaves, over 250,000 of them, unwilling to let them go. So as you can imagine, on this date, when the general arrived to Galveston, Texas on June 19th of 1865, he came with a boatload of soldiers. About three to 4,000 soldiers came with him. And of that three to 4,000, about half of them were soldiers of color. And could you imagine the slaves that were still tied to their plantations, tied to their masters, witnessing this this coming... (laughs) Right? Seen from afar, but then now witnessing this coming of these soldiers on to, 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 to Galveston, Texas. And they're like, I've never seen anything like this. 
I've never seen anybody like me in a position of power like these soldiers here. Could you imagine the weight of that? And not only was it manifested in, in, in the soldiers, but in the news that came. What they should have known two and a half years ago <laughs> was just now coming to hit their ears. It took over two and a half years for these slaves in Texas to realize that they have been free. <laughs> That's good news, <laughs> right? That is good news. And so this day, what we do is we celebrate um, it's, a, it's a holiday that's known to Texas, known throughout the nation, but it's, a, it's primarily a holiday celebrated by people of color, predominantly African-American culture. Um, but I think this is something that we can extend to the larger community as well. I don't know if Boone had a celebration, but Ames had a celebration yesterday from 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. last night. Ankeny had a celebration from 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. last night. And when I think about the growing awareness of this holiday and what it means for us, like, yo, this is phenomenal. And it has dramatic implications, I think, for us, not only socially, but also spiritually, <laughs> right? This redeeming aspect of a culture, this redeeming aspect of a people. And I think we can all rejoice in something like that. Um, let me pray, and then we'll jump right into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning, um, and we thank you for times to celebrate. Uh, we are still coming off a really heavy season the last two weeks of the tragedy at Cornerstone Church, and so we also thank you for times to mourn. Uh, Lord, you're teaching me something now to, um, especially in light of today, to, to celebrate even in light of mourning. And that may be true for some people in here as well uh, from different circumstances. Um, but Lord, but we thank you, and we're grateful for you, and we're grateful for your redeeming power. And it's in your name that we pray this. Amen. All right, so uh, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 18. You can get those out. Uh, turn to Luke 18 for me. And in Luke 18, one of the main things that gets put through Luke 18 is this theme of humility. And so we're going to talk a little bit about humility today. And the way I want to I wrap up this idea of humility is talking about the prerequisite to entering into the kingdom. And we'll see that this is humility. In my research for this sermon, I was doing some, some, some research. And I was looking up some things about some different requirements. What are some things or places or clubs that have a list of requirements that you have to have in order to get in? And I stumbled upon some of the requirements to become a U.S. citizen. And some of you may be familiar with these, but I want to read some of these to you. And some of the requirements to be a U.S. citizen are this. You must be... 18 years of age or older, you must have authorization to live and work in the U.S. on a permanent basis, you must have continuous residence in the U.S. for at least five years and be physically present in the U.S. for at least half that time, you must be able to read, write, and speak basic English. I know that wasn't me for a time in my life. I don't know about you. Must have a knowledge and understanding of the fundamentals of U.S. history and government. Yep, civics failed that class. <laughs> you must be a person of good moral character. You must take a loyalty of oath to the United States and support the Constitution and the form of government of the United States. As you can see, <laughs> right, this is an arduous list. It's a tall task, right? 
Some people come to the United States who are foreign-born or who are immigrants who labor their whole lives to gain this citizenship status to become a U.S. citizen. What we can take from this list is that the U.S. takes its citizenship very, very seriously. But I want us to know today that God also takes his citizenship very, very seriously. But his requirements are very simple. And we're going to see from this text today that the requirement that Jesus asked from us to be his kingdom citizen is this. It's humility. As we look at the text, we can see that Luke is sandwiching this chapter, Luke 18, but with, with two stories. Two stories of examples in this, in this chapter that he's talking about this greater concept of humility. If you look at verse 1 with me, it starts like this. Now we told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a single judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out and by her, wear me out by her persistent coming. And the Lord said... Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay, help? will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. But nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So a common way to interpret this passage is to, is to focus on the judge, which is good and right, right? Because God actually places himself in, in the judge camp. What we tend to get from this passage is that if an unjust judge can show mercy and justice, then how much more so the just God of the universe? This is good, right, and true. But we also have another character in this parable, and it's the widow. <laughs> right? It's the widow. And if you have a headliner in your Bible, I'm reading from the CSB, the headliner there of the, of the parable is the persistent widow. It gives no credence to the judge. And I think we can find some things and highlight this widow because she gives us this great image of what it looks like to embody humility. You see, a widow in this time period would have been part of a marginalized group. And a marginalized group are people who, who people don't readily identify with right? They kind of want to stay away from these sorts of things. If you were a widow in that time period, right, you didn't go out into public much, and you probably didn't even open your mouth much. And if you were religious at all, what you did was kind of keep your head down. You went to the temple to pay your taxes, and you probably brought your complaints to God silently and privately. What you for sure didn't do was what the widow did in this text was go to the judge and demand <laughs> Justice and mercy. But the thing that the widow knew was that she couldn't hide her state. She knew her humility. She knew, I am a widow. I am a marginalized person. But that doesn't keep her from running and going to the person that she knows can justify. I think we can learn from the widow that there's an acceptance that we have to have of humility before we can decide that we're actually going to go and pursue and be persistent, <laughs> identify with our humility so that we can go and recognize we need something from somewhere else. 
the second part of this sandwich of this text is at the very end, the story of the blind man and begins in verse 35. It says this, I'll read this to us as well. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. See, Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And instantly he could see. And he began to follow him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God as well. I love that part of the story. <laughs> The miracle that Jesus does isn't always for the person that's receiving the miracle, but it's also to display who he is so that others around will also know who Jesus is. Isn't that glorious? But we also see in this text this blind man. He also understands his humility. He doesn't try to deny that he's blind. He doesn't try to deny that he's an outcast. He doesn't try to deny that he's also a part of a marginalized group, just like the widow, but he receives that and acknowledges that. He can't even see Jesus. He has no idea what Jesus looks like, probably haven't even heard him come by before. But when he inquires, because he had heard about this man, and when he was told it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was coming by, it was faith that welled up in him to hold on to his humility and say, my best bet is not to think I'm good here in my blind state, but actually to cry out for God. And so we see that he cries out for God here in this text to be healed, and Jesus heals him. What Luke seems to be trying to do for us in this chapter today is remind us of these very familiar stories that tell us the first step in receiving Jesus is acknowledging our humility. He's saying to enter the kingdom, you should be like the poor, uh, the poor persistent widow, right, who has nothing but her voice to the judge for mercy and justice. And we should be like the poor blind man who has nothing but his voice to cry out to the creator of the entire world to say, I want to receive sight. So for the rest of the time, as we look at the chapter, here's what I want to do. I want to give us three things that humility calls us to acknowledge. And then I want to answer the question, what happens when we embrace our humility? And then I want to give us the means by which we can pursue humility. But first, what is humility calling us to acknowledge? The first point is this. Humility is, is acknowledging that we're unworthy. Humility is acknowledging we're unworthy. I want to look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, this one went down to to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have heard this story or heard about this story. We have two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Some of us may not be too familiar with the tax collector, but man, aren't we familiar with the Pharisee? (laughs) When we even hear that term, we want to cringe and hold tight and be like, yo, none none of us want to be like the Pharisees. But in this text, in this context, the people who are hearing this story When Jesus is saying that two men were going to the temple, one a Pharisee and one the tax collector, their ears perk up, and they're thinking that Jesus is about to tell them something that they already know. It's the Pharisee that's right, and he's going to be justified. This is what they knew. And when Jesus is telling this story, and he's saying the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. They would have been like, yes, (laughs) and amen, neither am I. This dude is great. We want to be just like him. But Jesus flips the script, doesn't he? He brings attention back to the tax collector, and he says, standing far off. He doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but keeps pounding his chest and saying, woe is me, for I am unworthy. You see, I read this text and I get super convicted, right? Because the Pharisee is the person that if you wanted somebody to come pray for you, you would ask the Pharisee to come pray for you. If you wanted somebody to come up here and stand up here and give you guys a sermon, you would ask the Pharisee come up here and give you a sermon. If you want somebody to come and lead your Bible study, lead your connection group, talk to you about the scriptures, you would call the Pharisee. This is who they were in their context. They were the religious upright, the ones who knew. And so when they're saying, I'm not like these other people, they would have been thinking they were standing on good grounds to say that they're not like these people. And you want to know what? They were right but they were trying to be right on their own merits. And if we're trying to be right on our own merits, we will never stand. You see, the problem with the Pharisee wasn't that he wasn't good, but is that he wasn't, that, but that he wanted to be good on his own. And as he's pursuing his righteousness, what it does, instead of driving him to the outsider, instead of driving him to the outcast, the broken, it actually drives him the other direction. It drives him away. Human righteousness drives us away from the outcast, but God's righteousness drives us towards the outcast. The problem with the Pharisee is not only that he was dismissive of the tax collector, but he ignored his own need for God's mercy and forgiveness. And ignoring his own need, he couldn't have compassion on the tax collector. But not only do we need to recognize that we are unworthy, but we also need to recognize our neediness, which leads me to my second point. Humility is acknowledging our neediness. Let's look at verse 15. It says this, people were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. 
Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, before we give the disciples such a hard time, right, I read this text and I'm like, yo, disciples are tripping. Like, they're just kids. Like, let them come to Jesus. Like, it's, it's fine, <laughs> you know. But the disciples had this idea of who Jesus was, and they had this agenda for Jesus, not recognizing what Jesus' agenda really was. And they're saying, hey, we don't want Jesus to be uh, distracted. We want Jesus to continue on his mission. And so the disciples were saying, yo, let's not bother with this young group of people. Let's continue on. Jesus has a purpose. He has a kingdom to inaugurate here on earth. What they were trying to do was not allow Jesus to become distracted. Parents, have you ever tried to do a task and invite your kids along, your young kids? Just the other day, I was taking the trash can outside, and I wanted to just wash up the trash can and get it clean to have it in the house. It was getting pretty stinky. And I asked one of my kids if they wanted to come out and, and do this task with me. And little Maya, she comes out, and we get the water hose, we got the trash can, we get the soap, and we're doing our thing. And what ended up, what should have been a five-minute task of watering down, soaping, and wiping up, and getting done became a 25 to 30-minute task of being completely drenched, not really cleaning the trash can at all, taking forever to set it out to dry, right? And that's having to change our clothes 30 minutes later. <laughs> and come out and try it again. What should have been a five-minute easy task to get this thing done becomes this long and audacious task to do, right? When you have kids involved, often the help doesn't become help. <laughs> it becomes a distraction. Am I right? Happy Father's Day, fellas. <laughs> I got distracted. And so this is what the disciples were trying to help Jesus avoid. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, let them come. So the disciples were concerned about the kids' function, but Jesus was concerned about the kids' reception. Maybe not very useful for particular tasks, but super receptive. See, one of the greatest things that distances us from Jesus is our own self-sufficiency. And I think it's ironic that Jesus uses children to get his point across here because in my experience, yes, at a time, you know, kids are really receptive and they take whatever you give them and they lean in and they learn and they want to do the right thing. But those of us who are parents, how, much, how many of you know that it doesn't take long for your kid's favorite word to become no, <laughs> right, or mine? <laughs> it happens really quickly. I'll do it myself, right? But isn't it true that even the most independent and self-sufficient child asks their parents, what's for dinner? Don't they even ask to be tucked in bed at night? Are they not quick to come find you when they feel they've lost sight or touch of you? Don't they even know that at the end of the day, they have a need, and it's not even primarily what you can do for them, but it's actually you yourself, this is what Jesus is saying we have to be like. 
Jesus isn't saying that he only accepts children, but he is saying our faith has to be like that of a child, needy and dependent, if we want to see the kingdom. My third point is this, humility is acknowledging that we are empty. And we'll look at the parable of the rich young ruler. And it says this, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and honor your father and mother. And he says, I have kept all of these from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Church, so often we get full on the things of this world. So often we get full on the things that we can do for ourselves. So often we get full on the things that we're saying we're doing for God. But what Jesus is saying, in order for us to be a a kingdom citizen, we have to empty ourselves. When this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus rightly. First of all, he comes to Jesus, (laughs) the best place he could possibly be. And he actually asks a right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question before? And he calls him good teacher. Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some have interpreted this to say that Jesus isn't somehow saying, or Jesus somehow saying he's not God, but that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying to this rich young ruler, do you have any idea what you're saying? If you're going to call me good, (laughs) you better mean it. Because nobody is good but God alone. Are you recognizing this or are you not recognizing this? And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery or murder or steal or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He says, I've kept all these things from my youth. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it all. And you can hear the desperation in his voice, right? He's saying, listen, but there's something else, (laughs) There's got to be something else. I've done every single thing. I've I've kept every letter to the law. There's got to be something else because I still feel void. And when Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing. (laughs) And he says, empty yourself. Empty it. Just let it go. There's this story um, written by C.S. Lewis called The Voyage in the Don Treader. Some of you maybe have read this before. C.S. Lewis is a phenomenal author, uh, and he's written several books. You might know him from the Chronicles of Narnia, and this book kind of sits in that world as well. And it talks about this, this, uh, this story of this lion named Aslan. And in this particular book, there's this lion named Aslan, and there's also this young boy named Eustace. And this young boy named Eustace, he's in this town, in this community, 
and his heart just isn't quite right. He's really angry and bitter towards the people around him. He's not really getting along with people. He's, 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 he's complaining about his, 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 his situation. And this, how C.S. Lewis describes his heart, that it's the heart of stone. It's a heart that's not soft. And so throughout the story, whatever's in his heart actually begins to envelop him as a person. And what that looks like is that he becomes a dragon, <laughs> a hard exterior, scaly, large. And so the people recognize he's a dragon, so obviously they excommunicate him outside of the community. And in this time, he learns that he didn't actually turn into a dragon, but all along he had been a dragon. This is what's true of our hearts. But he meets Aslan, the lion, and Aslan uh, exemplifies Jesus in this story. And the narrative goes like this. Eustace and Aslan... They go to a well with water, clear and inviting. And Eustace senses the well can heal him. But before getting in, Aslan tells him to undress. And Eustace realizes Aslan means he must shed his skin first. So you can imagine this dragon, he starts scratching and scratching at his skin. And he says, I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, and so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But its scales grew back. And so we go through the exercise again, but it grows back again and again. And then Aslan finally pipes up and he says this, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace was afraid, but he saw the task was impossible in his own hands. He said, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. And the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And when I saw why, I turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and he dressed me in new clothes. Y'all, this is an illustration of what it looks like to have yourself emptied, 
What the rich young ruler didn't realize is that he needed to empty himself so that Jesus could do the work for him to become something entirely new. You see, Eustace in this story, he had two choices, and same as the rich young ruler, to continue to be covered by his scales or be free by letting Aslan do what he couldn't do. And in order to get to this point, we have to address our pride. We have to address our pride. We have to set our pride aside and acknowledge our humility. See, pride makes it difficult to embrace, to embrace God's grace because God's grace makes us raw and it makes us humble. And like the rich young ruler, rather than being humble and brought down, our pride would rather go at it alone. But look at what Jesus says next in Luke 18, verse 24. He says this, seeing that he became sad, the rich young ruler, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, and who can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. You see, when we let pride win, we won't come to the feet of Jesus. And if we won't come to the feet of Jesus, we can't be stripped from our scales to be made new. We'll rest on our pride, and we won't delight in our humility. And if this is the case, we will go away sad. And I love the question the disciples ask here. They ask Jesus, then, then who can be saved? They saw this idea of wealth, of being like blessed materially. And if you're blessed materially, then obviously you have some kind of blessing spiritually. But this wasn't what Jesus was getting to. He was saying the wealth is actually what blinds you and it distracts you from real and true wealth. So the disciples flabbergasted said, then who can be saved. What is impossible with man is possible with God, Jesus answers. In Ezekiel chapter 37, in verses 1 through 10, there's this story of the valley of dry bones. And God is talking to this prophet Ezekiel, and he's standing in front of this valley with all these dry, dead bones in it that once was real people. And he's looking at it, wondering if, if these people could ever live again. And I want to read this to us and what it says here in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was on me and brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me all around them, and there were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. And then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I replied, Lord God, only you know. And he said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter into you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
And so I prophesied as had been commanded. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone by bone. And as I looked, tendons appeared on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the Lord of God says, breathe. Come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their very feet. All of the bones, a vast army. What is impossible with man is possible with God, right? This is good news. This is good news. Ephesians says it like this. Y'all, those of us who are Christians... We were once dead in our trespasses. Ezekiel calls it a valley of dry bones. Anything that is not possible with man is possible with God. And what's possible with God is new life. (laughs) Brand new life. So to answer the question of the disciples who can be saved, the answer is this. You can But you're going to have to let Jesus do it. He's saying that if you do it, <laughs> the best you can do is be a hairy, old, sweaty camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle. <laughs> it's impossible. But if he does it, you can have resurrection life. So what happens? What happens when you actually believe this, that there's eternal life offered to everyone, but you can't make it on your own? What happens when this starts to stir conviction in your soul and it convicts your heart? What do you do? You fall face first into the gospel. Look at this last part of the text with me. Verse 31 says, then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and sold and spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. Now, you've got to imagine the disciples hearing this now. This is the third time in this this book that Jesus is predicting his death. So it's not the first time the disciples are hearing about it, but the disciples are just as distraught this time as they were the first two. And they're saying, Jesus... Why do you have to go and die? Why does this have to be a part of your ministry? Why does it have to be the way you have to save the world? They don't even have the language to ask those questions, but they're thinking this. They're thinking, this, this can't be. Jesus, you can't die. But we know on this side of the cross that Jesus had to die. And that if Jesus doesn't die, if he doesn't embody the humility that he's calling us to embody, that he can't be the Savior that we need. And so he does this. This is the greatest news ever. But look at what it says next. It says, the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. Why? Because they didn't understand that the humility that, we were, that they were witnessing in Christ and the humility which they were being called to was the same humility that Christ had to embody himself a humility that must cost him his life. And so if you're here and you know the gospel, that God saves sinners 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't let this grow old to you this morning. And don't let humility become a taboo subject for you because humility is the impetus to the gospel. And don't hear me wrong, right? Humility doesn't save you. It's Jesus that saves you. But you can't receive the good news that saves you if you've never acknowledged that you need saving. If you've never sang the song of the tax collector, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, then maybe you've never met Christ. We have to acknowledge that we are unworthy that we are needy and that we have a ridiculously large void that we try to fill with everything but Jesus himself. We're empty. As I conclude, the band can come on up. To the believers in the room, we can take this as our reminder. And to the non-Christians in the room, Maybe you're in here today and you haven't accepted Christ and you're thinking, see, I knew this faith was too costly. I knew Jesus would ask me of too much. I knew he would ask me of everything. To come into Jesus means I have to deny myself. Christianity is so anti-self-care, right, if I could bring modern term into it. And this is why I can't follow Jesus. If this is you, I want to encourage you with the word today. Jesus isn't saying these things having never experienced them. In fact, it's the opposite. We can put on humility because Christ put on humility first. The Bible is not simply this book of rules to follow, but one that continuously points us to our broken humanity and calls us to accept that brokenness. It's a book that tells us we can accept the plight of being human and identify with our own in Christ's suffering because Christ first suffered and identified with us. And it's by identifying with this suffering and humility that which we can be ripped and stripped of the hard exterior around us and really receive and experience the goodness and graceful gift of Jesus Christ. Early on in his letter to the Philippians, Paul, an apostle of Christ, encouraged his church in Philippi in humility by saying this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. So that the name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the Messiah is our humble and suffering Savior who even after his resurrection bears the marks of his humility. Whole pierced hands, the wound 
in his side. And it is in this Christ that we can hope when we finally realize everything else fails. He gives us hope when we are feeling unworthy. And he gives us hope when we are feeling needy. And he gives us the hope when we recognize our emptiness. And he repurposes it so that we will find our worth, riches, and fullness in him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, if there's anybody in here who was feeling an overwhelming sense of inadequacy, would you just touch them right now? Would you let them know that this is the very place that they need to be and should be in order to receive the very good, faithful, and gracious riches that you are waiting to give us that is yourself? Lord, help us not to run away from the reality and truth of who we are. We are broken people. We're liars. <laughs> We're thieves. We're criminals. We are these things. We are the blind man begging to have sight. We are the poor, persistent widow begging for justice and mercy. This is who we are. Will you allow us to receive this so that we can lean into our humility and really come to you as children come to the Father, open and willing and receptive. Lord, it's in your name that we pray this. In your mighty son, Jesus, amen.